Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 9 Being in the Wake The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for collectively inhabited feminism, where not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The ninth episode is the result of a conversation with Christina Sharp, scholar of English literature and black studies, author of the books Monstrous Intimacies, Making Post-Slavery Subjects from 2010, and In the Wake on Blackness and Being from 2016. She is currently a professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. Christina Sharp's voice appeared earlier in several episodes of the Corona Under the Ocean podcast series over the course of 2020. Astrida Neimanis, Filippa Ramos, or Elizabeth Povanelli would mention her work in the different conversations we had from the ocean and towards the water. In another conversation, this time between Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, which belongs to their book The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Studies, The former tells the latter that the most important ideas in his life have appeared in conversations with other people. I think the same could be said of authors, books, essays, poetry, novels, film and works of art. While writing is capable of introducing orality into its pages, voices also make writing appear, transmitting it from mouth to ear, from one body to another. In the Wake is a book that I started to read in other people's voices but it doesn't let itself be translated into other people's words. It has its own different grammar that reveals and recounts grammar as a form of power. As Hannah Black says it in a text she wrote in 2016 about this book by Christina Sharp, on this impossible ground, not really a ground, but an ocean becoming ground, Sharp stakes out a space between the immediacy of suffering and the mediation of language. In the Wake on Blackness and Being is an indivisible book with four chapters. It is a rigorously non-academic essay. Each chapter takes as its title one of the elements that are part, in past and present, of the long and violent history of transatlantic slavery. The Wake, the Ship, the Hold and the Weather are four elements that not only exist in continuous interrelationship, but also carry multiple meanings and point in many directions at once. They are maritime elements that nevertheless come out of the water and continue acting on land. The Black Atlantic is still very present and stretches out to the Black Mediterranean and to the weather. In the Wake is an essay written in first person that tells the history and present of the black diaspora, the structural and constitutive anti-blackness of white colonialism and capitalism. As Christina Sharp writes, 
In what I'm calling the weather, anti-blackness is pervasive as climate. During our conversation, Christina empathized that the use of the first person and her own biography when writing in the wake is not intended to speak of her individual experience as exceptional, but rather as an exercise in openness towards the historical and structural dimension of the book. Black suffering, also black resistance, must be contextualized in the long history of structural anti-blackness. Christina also tells how some people have seen in In the Wake a book about black death, when it is also a book about black life, about forms of collective resistance within a constantly hostile climate. I am interested in the ways we live in and despite that terror, she says. Being in the wake also implies the existence and possibility of wake work. Many of the predictions of improvement during the global COVID-19 pandemic have faded in the past few months and weeks. The pandemic has increased the structural violence of the system, precisely because of the daily violence involved in maintaining its structure during a pandemic. The so-called normal that so many governments invoke and so many people demand is not a return to an ideal state of things. That normal was not only part of the problem, it was and continues to be the problem. In the current state of the pandemic, and thanks to the military jargon of most governments, the term lockdown has become fully integrated into everyday language. As Christina Sharp notes, not only is it a term that incorporates the prison context within homes, but it produces a false equivalent between reduced global and local mobility and the violent reality of people in actual lockdown. This conversation with Christina Sharp took place at the end of December 2020. Christina was in Toronto and I was in Berlin. We began by talking about the sea and water and how her thinking is a thinking with water and with authors who think with water. It is also a form of a tidal thinking where Christina's voice carries many other voices and works in an explicit and nonlinear way. Kamau Brathwaite, M. Norbisi Philip, Dayon Brandt, Fred Daguar, and Torquisi Dyson are authors and references that she mentions from the beginning of our encounter and that appear again in the course of the conversation, together with others like Toni Morrison, Salama Witter of Fay, or Jennifer Packer. Although speaking and writing can produce very different languages from each other, Christina Sharp's way of speaking contains her writing and vice versa. In this conversation, not only do other voices appear within her own, but the writing itself becomes voice thanks to the organic becoming of talking into reading aloud. When writing is inscribed in bodies, they remind us that thinking is also visceral and material. I listened to the Serpentine 
series like two weeks ago, Fish Stories, and I wasn't able to hear all of it, but I heard Elizabeth Povanelli talking about moving from Louisiana to the time that she spends in Australia and about climate change and how at first it was humid and that humidity was so familiar to her from living, I think, in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so I was thinking that I have a healthy respect for water and in some ways it's less a personal affection with water than a thinking with water and with writers who think with water. I mean, I love the ocean. I feel like I need to see the ocean, but I don't really go into the ocean. But I think about those writers like Kamal Brathwaite and Orbezi Phillip, Dion Brand, Fred Degar, and then artists like Turquoise Dyson and their engagements with water, which have also engaged me. Like Brand says that water is the first thing in my imagination. And I think about Norbezi Phillips writing about Zong and trying to find the word to think about how to bring those Africans who were thrown overboard back from the water. And she comes up with Exaqua or Brathwaite writing in Dream Haiti, the sea was like slake gray of what was left of my body and the white waves I remember. And I could go on, but it's really thinking with those writers or someone like Fred Degar writing Feeding the Ghosts that got me really thinking about the ocean and then talking to my former colleague about residence time and really wanting to think about the ways in which we are still present as molecules in the water. And I think you're absolutely right about this idea of visceral thinking and what Zacharias calls visceral thinking, the refusal to kind of split, to live in that Cartesian split of the mind-body that's a sort of a side of part of my answer. So I wanted to start with actually the part of the question in which you talk about your doctoral studies tutor saying you had to get out of your writing, that you were too much into it and this was not the way to write a thesis. I want to say that, of course, that's very familiar. And that when I started graduate school, I took two years off between undergraduate and graduate school. And as I say in the book, you know, neither of my parents went to college. My siblings went to college. We were but none of, neither of my parents did, and I was the first person in my immediate family to go to graduate school. My brother is a lawyer, he's a public defender. So when I started graduate school, I hadn't intended to be a professor. What I really wanted to do was to start an independent black middle school in West Philadelphia. And I naively thought that going to get a PhD, that I could do it because I loved literature. I was very naive, but also because I thought I should have the highest degree that I could in and take this time to sort of think and learn in order to do the work that I wanted to do in starting this independent black middle school. Really, I wanted to do sixth to eighth grade. Well, obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> I ended up going on to be a professor in university.
But much of my writing began with what I knew, what I've said that I think that we are often disciplined out of. And I thought that that was the work of theory to help us give words to, to help us explain and elaborate what we needed to explain and elaborate and know in order to live. And so some of the first works that provided a kind of theoretical ballast for me that refused that split were like Barbara Smith's Homegirls, a Black feminist anthology, which I read when I was 19, when she came to visit University of Pennsylvania, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. This bridge called my back, but some of us are brave, loving in the war years. All those works, some of which I read in university, others which I read on my own, not in classes, but while I was a student, they opened my imagination. They connected thinking and the body. They gave me a language for sexuality and Black feminism. And it's that work that informed the work that I wanted to do in graduate school along with the work of reading novels and poetry and a book like uh, Patricia J. Williams' The Alchemy of Race and Rights. That was my orientation toward thinking and writing, the ways that the personal deeply informed the theoretical. And when I was writing my dissertation and working on the first chapter of it, which also became the first chapter of Monstrous Intimacies, though the book is not my dissertation, I had to begin writing that chapter about Gail Jones's Corrigadora through writing about the secrets in my own maternal line those things that my mother did not know, those things that I did not know that still had profound effects on our lives. But sort of many computers and many moves later, I've lost that initial writing. But it was still what I needed to do to be able to begin the work, even if no one on my committee would ever see those pages. One part of your question asks me about sort of autobiography or memoir. And I don't think that In the Wake is either autobiography or memoir, that I don't have the desire really to write either one. And I think in this moment, there's so much work being written and published by young Black writers and so much important thinking being done. And much of it's being published as memoir. And I wonder if that's partially because of publishing and the market. Because I'm not certain that all those writers, and this is pure speculation, actually want to be writing memoir. But the market's hungry for what it imagines as individual experience and not theoretical intervention or ways of imagining and actually living otherwise. It seems to me market push for young, whatever I mean by young, it's a range of age of people to, to write memoir, to make a kind of structural critique into an individual experience. And so you have to channel what could be your structural critique or your imagination of ways of living otherwise or your diagnosis, even though I'm not trying to think of it sort of medically, but your understanding and knowledge of anti-Blackness and your ways of living in the world in spite of into this marketable thing called memoir, which is deeply individualized. And so it kind of dulls the structural critique. It dulls the theoretical richness of so much of the imagining of Black life that is happening across kind of geo-histories into this thing called memoir, which becomes an individual experience of overcoming.
which is the nature of memory, right? Unless it's a traumatic memory, those kinds of distinctions between deep memory and common memory that somebody like I think Lawrence Langer lays out that the sort of deep memory is the traumatic memory that doesn't change over time. And the common memory is the memory of things which might actually never have happened, but you might invent or that you and I experience an event and we have a different memory of that event and that fades over time. But of course you're not wrong, on the other hand, because in the wake, as you say, begins with the sentence, I wasn't there when my sister died, which is to say that it begins in the register of what we come to think of as the auto-theoretical with my recounting of the deaths in close succession of three members of my family. You ask sort of why I begin there in a way, and I began there because as I was reading and writing and researching and collecting for the book, I joined other people who were doing this kind of thinking and collecting and reading as well about Black people who were everywhere in the midst of all kinds of disaster and also kind of refusal of that disaster. I thought that those losses needed to join other losses on the page, not just implicitly, but explicitly. Like it didn't seem right. It seemed ethically wrong to be documenting the murder of Trayvon Martin and not talk about my own personal orientation toward these ongoing murders. So I thought that those losses, my personal losses, needed to join those other losses on the page explicitly. I thought that they needed to be theorized as the ways that one is oriented to one's own work from the location of the body, from the location of our own places in history and all that that might mean, whether we admit it or not. Because I also wanted to think about what we make in the face of all that state and other violence that's in excess of that violence. feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's not repeating myself to you. It's simply that it's a question that I've been asked before. I could have narrated in the same way, so that's my own problem. But it's that I was working on another book when I started working on this book. I was working on a book called Memory for Forgetting, Blackness and Whiteness and Cultures of Surprise, and it was looking at the sort of U.S. and South Africa and visual artists and writers and thinking about that kind of response that always happens when some racist structure is laid bare and the white response is surprise. So I was trying to think through that and thinking through a number of texts from Charles Chestnut's The Marrow of Tradition to Marlena Van Niekerk's Ahat, which is a novel I think that came out in like 2008 in South Africa. And she's an Afrikaner writer. So I was thinking through a number of things. I was going to read some Zoe Wickham. I might have returned to Bessie Head, etc. I was working on that. And then the earthquake in Haiti happened. And I was teaching. And I was teaching June Jordan's The Difficult Miracle of Black Poetry, something like a sonnet for Phyllis Wheatley. And I think I was teaching a Black feminisms class to undergraduates. And I started seeing all these photographs coming out of Haiti, and I saw the photograph of the little girl that I returned to over time in In the Wake, and that completely remade the project, though I don't think I knew it at first, because I sat with that photograph for a couple of years without being able to get past the pain of the photograph. 
and the pain of all that had happened and was happening still in Haiti, by which I mean the ongoing punishment of Haiti by Western powers, the ongoing intervention in Haiti's governance by Western European powers. I think just over time I was collecting all of these things and first I had a kind of Tumblr account, which also hysterical blackness, and I would put things there because I thought I was also working through what I called thinking juxtapositionally, which is sort of what happens when you place events and images and things, perhaps unexpected things side by side. What might we see differently? So I started collecting things there and various disorganized folders on my desktop and bookmarks. And then just reading, reading in writing this book, it was one of the first times that my reading and teaching and writing were aligned because often I was teaching things that had nothing to do with what I was actually writing. So it was a combination of all of those things that helped me begin the work of what became this book. And also, as I've said before, really a conversation with my editor at Duke, Ken Whisaker, who when I was talking about this book, because I had talked about the other book, and said what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write, and that I wanted to write for an audience that moved beyond academia and that could be read by people across different educational backgrounds. And he said, write the book that you want to write. And so that really gave me the permission. I mean, I had tenure at that point, whether I was promoted to full professor or not, in some sense didn't matter. So it gave me the permission to write the book that I really wanted to write, to try to find the language to write the book that I wanted to write. Maybe four years over the course of collecting and thinking and writing and rewriting bits of it again and again and again to finishing it. Let me start with, well, actually, I thought it was interesting that you said that another biography appears in the book in the process of colonial violence against Black people over the centuries and still ongoing. I thought that was an interesting framing because if colonial violence is a biography, whose is it? It's a biography of the colonizer, the enslaver. And so that their biography is a biography that's written with blood and violence, genocide, the Herero in, in Southern Africa, so I guess it's Namibia, Southwest Africa, or the genocidal impulse of chattel slavery. So, you know, that would be the biography of what becomes whiteness. It would be a biography of colonial and genocidal and enslaving violence. So I thought that was a kind of interesting framing. Then I thought it was also a really interesting question about the kind of grammar that I've created in the book. And I'm just going to quote myself. So at the end of the first chapter, I said that it's my particular hope, and I think this goes to answering it, though I'm not sure. My particular hope was that the theory and performance of the wake and wake work as modes of attending to Black life and Black suffering are imagined and performed here with enough specificity to attend to the direness of the multiple overlapping presence that we face. It's my hope that the praxis of the wake and wake work might have enough capaciousness to travel and do work that I have not here been able to imagine or anticipate, end quote. 
And I also wrote that I was trying to find the language for the work and find the form for the work, and that language and form fractured more every day. I'm trying to to find the words that will articulate care and the words to think what Kibaro Masharia calls those we formations. And so thinking those two quotes together, I really wanted to think about the kind of capaciousness of imagination and the way that that would allow for the work that one was trying to do to dictate the grammar in which one wrote so that the grammar would shift according to what one was trying to do and that I would be able to hopefully produce a grammar that allowed me to write what I needed to write about each of those spaces, the wake, the ship, the hold, or the weather, and that the writing would in part determine the form. When I started writing, I knew that I was going to have a chapter called The Wake. I knew about the ship. But at some point in talking to my friend Kigoro, he said, I had shared something with him and he said, oh, are you going to have a chapter called The Girl? And really that's when it became clear to me that the girl was a figure who repeated throughout the entire book. And it's actually only after the fact that I realized that in The Wake, the girl also appears and that the girl is me. I appear in a picture holding my nephew, who was 10 years and one week younger than me. And I hadn't realized that until, actually, I think until I read Hannah Black wrote a review of In the Wake for four columns. And I don't think I realized that I was the girl until I read that review. So the ways in which retrospectively people reading your work teach you something about your work that you're not even aware of. And so in some sense, the splits are arbitrary, and in other senses, they're not. I mean, each of them kind of repeats throughout the context of the wake repeats, the ship repeats, the hole repeats, the weather repeats. The weather is the condition for the production of all of it, right? And so I, that's why I wanted to end with the weather. With each of the chapters, I wanted to position readers in ways to read the past and present archives of everyday violence so that we could think about an ongoing present of subjection and resistance as we attempt to imagine a new something like Black life. And so the weather is but the means by which I wanted to theorize climate, social, political, ecological as anti-Black in order to insist that we also think with climate in terms of thinking and imagining Black livable presents and futures. And one of the real motivations for that, as I've said many times, is both the end of Toni Morrison's Beloved, but also Dion Brand's Verso 55, which did something so completely different in terms of thinking about an encounter with one's ancestors. When you encounter in that verso, which appears in the book, The Blue Clerk, when the ancestors rise up from their skin dust and the floor and say, you're still alive, and they answer, Yes, and they say, you are still alive, how sweet. You are still alive, like oxygen, like hydrogen. And that idea that in entering those spaces where we were held, that you would meet someone who would marvel that you survived, that something of them survived, was astonishing to me. And then, of course, Zong as another poem that helped me think through these four sites of the kind of constitution of something like Black life and Black death.
you know, there are many people, it seems to me, who read in the wake and think that I'm only talking about Black death when I'm not. I'm also talking about what we make in the face of this continual push toward our death. And I thought to circle back around to one of your first questions about the personal, which is not just the personal, but tied to the structural and the theoretical. I think what came to me is when I was thinking about my mother and when I was thinking, you know, I don't just want to recount death. I want to recount something else about how one lives then occurred to me that my mother was my example for how to do that, that my mother, as I said, you know, made a path through the wake and all of these ways that she fought to bring joy into the house in every way that she could. And that my mother's doing was my first encounter with somebody theorizing in the wake. In some ways, that is one of the questions that I think is also for people to encounter in the ways in which I cannot imagine. So I don't have a prescription. It was really a way for me to think about, well, what kind of work was I doing, say, in relation to my brother dying? How hard I had to fight to make sure that he got the kind of care that he needed. How hard I had to fight to make sure that my mother got the kind of pain relief that she needed as she was dying because she was in tremendous pain. We know the ways that Black suffering is taken as so much air, that it's not something that you ameliorate, it's something that you move through, you not being the Black person. I think it happens in all kinds of ways. I think it happens in terms of writing and teaching and mutual aid. I think we see so many ways in which something like wake work happens. Though I don't feel the need to attach that phrase to everything that people do, right? People are doing, and it wasn't meant to invent something. It was a way to speak to the kinds of work that we do, the kind of care work that we do, counter to the kind of violence of the state and the state's many institutions, even those that are supposed to care, like hospitals, like doctors, like teachers. And so we see the ways in which those institutions enact the very opposite of care, enact all kinds of violence in the name of disciplining Black people. So I think, as I say, it takes all kinds of forms. And I think we see it over and over again in terms of the mutual aid projects that people begin and others take up and that circulate and grow and then end and then spring up in new forms as needed, I think, people refusing in the midst of a global pandemic and orders to stay at home, people refusing to stay at home. People took to the streets for 40, 50, 60, 70 days, masses of people refusing to be silent about the ongoing murders of Black people. And that was astonishing. That's part of it. I'm really interested in so much of the most generative and energetic and beautiful thinking is in the register of abolition right now. I want to think with somebody like Ruth Wilson Gilmore or someone like Marianne Kaba and other people who are 
in the context of the U.S. who are really thinking about abolition, and not just in relation to the U.S., but they're located in the U.S. and they've been writing about the U.S. And so abolition, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore reminds us, is not just about tearing things down, it's also about presence. It's about making present other ways of living. It's about building other ways of relating to each other and living with each other. It's about a whole other series of, of relations and possibilities that the carceral stifles, chokes, uh, makes impossible. And so I'm really interested that the language of the pandemic is the language of lockdown and that we enter so readily into the language and echo that language of lockdown, which is carceral language in order to describe these ways in which our movement is being interdicted. So I want to be really conscious of that and not echo that language because first of all it is a repetition it's the interweaving of police language into our everyday language but also it misrepresents what lockdown is if you're in lockdown and you're incarcerated you're not going out to get groceries you're not allowed to meet with 10 people outside of your house it both weaves the carceral even more securely into our intimate lives and it actively misnames what lockdown is. That's one thing I've been thinking quite a bit about. One of the other things is, so in terms of thinking about what's going on in Canada, in Toronto in particular, in August there were a series of really interesting conversations that a woman named Lana James hosted, and she is a PhD candidate, and they were called COVID conversations. So one of them is with Lana James and Ronaldo, Professor Ronaldo Walcott, who's at U of T. Um, one of them, Ruha Benjamin, was part of, who's a professor at Princeton. And I can't remember who was involved with all of the other ones, but there were a number of them and I watched them. I just, I'm having a memory lapse right now. And part of the things that kept coming up were about the collection of data on Black people. The U.S. was good at collecting data. Canada's not so good at collecting data on Black people. But nothing good has ever come of that data collected on Black people. The kind of caution about to be careful what you're asking for and what will be done with this kind of data collection. And I was thinking about an op-ed that Dion Brand wrote that broke the internet for like two days, which was called On Narrative and Reckoning. And she was writing about invocation of the normal. And part of what she wrote is this, quote, those in power keep invoking the normal, as in when we get back to normal. I've developed an aversion to that word normal. Of course, I understand the more benign meanings of normal, having dinner with friends, going to the movies, going back to work, not so benign. However, I have never used it with any confidence in the first place. Now I find it noxious. The repetition of when things return to normal, as if that normal was not in contention. Was the violence against women normal? Was the anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism normal? Was white supremacy normal? Was the homelessness growing on the streets normal? Were homophobia and transphobia normal? Were pervasive surveillance and the policing of Black and Indigenous and people of color normal? Yes, I suppose all of that was normal. But I and many other people hate that normal. Who would one have to be to sit in that normal restfully, to mourn it or to desire its continuance? We are, in fact, still in that awful normal that it narrativized as minor injustices or social ills that would get better if some of us waited, if we had the patience to bear it, if we had noticed and were grateful for the minuscule, quote, progress, etc. Well, yes, this normal, this usual, this ease was predicated on dis-ease, 
this disease was always presented as something to be solved in the future, but for certain exigencies of budget, but for planning, but for the faith, but for the faults of those people, their lack of responsibility, but for all that, there were plans to remedy it in some future time. We were told to hold on to that hope and the suspension of disbelief it required to maintain normal, end quote. So this repeated logic, and as I said, that was Dion Brand, this repeated logic that we are to hold on for, desire a return to a normal that was always anti-Black, that was always anti-Indigenous, that was violent in every manifestation as something to be desired. And you hear this logic again and again and again in Toronto. The numbers of people who are dying in, say, Jane and Finch, which is a largely Black area in Toronto, the numbers, the rate of death, the rate of infection is much higher there. And so all of these ways in which the kind of cruelty of the society that we were always living in becomes even starker at this time. It's one of the gifts of my mother to me. My mother was a beautiful reader and read to us, and we read all the time as children. Two years ago, I was part of a workshop at Goldsmiths in London, and one of the organizers was uh, Dele Adeyemo. And the workshop was called Circulations on the Logistical Condition. And during the convening, Dele spoke about something that he had been working on called Black Infrastructures and the conditions of possibility and impossibility for something like Black life. So we were thinking about what it looks like to design and think infrastructurally from Black. In this time, I've been thinking a lot about the logistical condition here and what it reveals about ordinary practices of cruelty and uncare. Again, the communities with the highest rates of infection are Black communities. And so the logistical condition that, you know, I went for a walk yesterday to pick up some errands and I thought, and I think this all the time, the cruelty of these nations where there is so much human fecal matter on the streets because the logistical condition is such that you do not care for unhoused people. The logistical condition is such that there are unhoused people. I mean, Toronto is in the midst of evicting masses of people so that there was a brief eviction moratorium that ended. And there are several Twitter accounts that are marking these evictions. Some of them as little as 60 seconds to evict people for back rent. When people have been asking the provincial government and the city government to continue an eviction moratorium. But they're evicting people in the midst of what they are calling, you know, a pandemic. So that you have this ongoing crisis of housing, a housing emergency in the midst of a medical emergency. And the housing emergency is still ongoing. They're still evicting people, even as Toronto was about to enter into another increased restrictive mode in relation to the corona-19, right? Our present livings demands that we pay attention to what's going on, not just or primarily as inconvenience, but about information about how life is organized and reorganized. Because people are still doing the work who have to do those essential workers who are working in grocery stores who are delivering your food to you on bicycles, who are doing all of these things to keep the kind of infrastructure working. They're not sitting at home watching Netflix.
Right, so you have to always participate in this narrative of being a good migrant. Some of us aren't migrants, and nobody should have to justify their right to life through a narrative of utility to the state. A friend of mine, the scholar Zakia Iman Jackson, who wrote a really beautiful and important book called Becoming Human Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World, says that Black excellence is the answer to a racist question. That those kinds of framings, those because can I be mediocre? had gone to Montreal and it was a, like a terribly cold, blustery Montreal winter day and had gone to the Museum of Contemporary Art because I wanted to see Sophie Kai for the first time. So I had gone because I wanted to see the show with her and I thought that part of it was really spectacular. The part called For the First Time, which was these 14 large-scale projected films which were shot from behind. So it's residents of Istanbul who, despite living about 15 miles away from the sea, have never seen the sea. And so Kai works with this organization that takes people to the sea. And then she films men, women, and children. The children are in a separate part of the exhibition. But she films them looking at the sea for as long as they like. And then they turn around and face the camera and then for as long as they want. And then they walk away. And it was deeply moving and evocative, the different responses that people had to the sea from like astonishment to anger. Like, how could I have lived here all my life and never seen this? It was it's really quite something. So then I went downstairs and there was the Alan Sekula and Noel Birch film. And as I write in the book, when Ariel Jackson appears, I actually thought it was at the beginning of the film, but it's really at the end of the film, I think. And it kind of rearranged time. She appears in the background and I thought, oh, she's not going to be allowed to just stay in the background. She's going to have to move to the foreground and she's going to be put to work. And she really is. And she becomes this placeholder for all of these things that they never say. I mean, how can you have this film on the forgotten space, a film essay seeking to understand the contemporary maritime world in relation to the symbolic legacy of the sea and not talk about global warming, fights over water and other resources, to not talk about Middle Passage, to not talk about those journeys that Africans make over land and then across the Mediterranean Sea in attempt to reach places like Lampedusa, how these are connected to the containerization of people prior to and then during and after that perilous sea voyage. They don't attend to any of this. They don't attend to what I say in the book, the histories of slavery, of property, of thingification, and their afterlives. And I was actually really astonished by that. At the same time, I wasn't. So yeah, I mean, they say, right, the cargo containers are everywhere, mobile and anonymous, coffins of remote labor power, carrying goods manufactured by invisible workers on the other side of the globe. They never connected to that long long, long history of the containerization of people. It was quite astonishing and a true missed opportunity.
And so it seemed to me that Ariel Jackson, and then to name her former mother, a la partis sequitum vent, right? And the two white men are still their occupations, but she's a former mother. I just thought it was the kind of height of cruelty as well. It was completely a form of violence and that she is so vulnerable in front of the camera. And then to layer that kind of violence, completely divorced from the ways in which chattel slavery attempted to sever those ties and the ways in which ongoing violence works to sever those ties from the Moynihan Report to the rules about who can live in public housing, all of these ways in which the status of Black women as a mother is repeatedly violated by the state over centuries. And not just by the U.S. state, by the Canadian state, by many states. Um, yes, we are having a conversation. It was a great conversation. She's a tremendous thinker. And it's a quotation, and I don't know. I went back and looked at it, and I don't know that it's as clear in the interview as it could. That quote, the most dangerous place for an African-American in the womb, is neither Salamawit nor me speaking. It comes from a series of right-wing, anti-reproductive rights, anti-choice advocates called Life Always. And they placed that sentence along with photographs of Black children on billboards in Black neighborhoods in order to say, to be, quote unquote, in order to be anti-choice. So in fact, in, the, in 2011, a woman named Trisha Fraser sued the group who put up the ads, one for four months by Holland Tunnel, and then one, I think, in Alabama somewhere, that used a photograph of her then four-year-old daughter. And Ms. Fraser said she never agreed to either the message or the use of her daughter's image for their anti-choice messaging. And so the sort of use uh, and reuse of images of Black women and children for purposes that are explicitly anti-care for either Black women or Black children is something that gets repeated and repeated. I think you said something earlier about abstraction. I've been thinking with somebody like Kwasi Dyson about Black abstraction. She calls Black compositional thought as ways to understand you know, how Black people have leapt into something like liberation from the enclosure. In that conversation that, and I'm not sure which one you saw, if you saw a conversation that we had at the Graham Foundation, or a conversation that we had at the drawing center. But in the conversation we had at the drawing center in New York, she said before our conversation began, and then I think I repeated it in the context of the conversation, that the shape makes the black. And I just always say this, I think that's a stunning distillation of the ways in which we might understand something about how blackness gets made. And so you've asked me about how the ship works throughout the context of the book. Like Dyson and I were talking about how like the porthole on the ship is one of those sites that makes the black. People weren't black when they entered that ship. They weren't Negroes when they entered those ships. They were Igbo, they were Hausa, they were Fulani, etc. And it's the working of the ship that both makes white sailors and Negro captives. So, so we're talking partially about that and that those sites might also be spaces from which you can imagine and leap into something like freedom. Harriet Jacobs, three by nine by seven, through that loophole, orchestrates 
her children's freedom, and eventually her own. Then I've most recently written about the painter Jennifer Packer, who has a show at the Serpentine Gallery called The Eye is Not Satisfied with the Seeing. And she's a beautiful, beautiful painter. And the kind of tenderness that she brings to her subjects, the kind of color, the ways in which paintings are lit with this kind of tenderness and care, so that she has these series of bouquets that are named, that are made for Black people who have been murdered by police. Say her name is one that she painted, I think in 2017, for Sandra Bland. And she has a series of them because those murders repeat. And each bouquet is different, with different flowers, different formations, these still lives that get at something about a beauty of a life that has been cut short and your connection to that life and the possibility of that life. I have ongoing collaborations with Torquase Dyson, who is a beautiful painter and thinker and sculptor. Another artist whose work I absolutely love is Lynette Yaldem Boaké, who has a show in London right now. So whereas Jennifer Packer paints people she knows, Lynette Yaldem Boaké paints people in her imagination. And like her paintings are just otherworldly. The light that comes from them also. And I've been lucky enough to see both Packers and her paintings in person. They're just gorgeous and they give us so much in terms of, sort of black liveliness. And so I've been thinking a lot with the work of these painters and visual artists. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch that's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch that's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Institut du Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information on museumsush.ch That's museumsouche.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziza. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. 
Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel und Chris Handberg. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Usuch, Art Stations Foundation CH 2021.